Awesome. Uh, Honey Badger, of course, Sponge, and the Honey Badger team. Thank you for jumping on an episode of Mind of the Lion. Bowtied Barb. Uh, before diving into your, your perspective, how we got here today, Honey Badger, uh, just want to share with the audience on Substack and also YouTube, uh, Twitter.com, Bowtied Badger, more um, content to follow. Uh, but for now, give Honey Badger a follow. He has a traditional finance background, uh, but he's here in the jungle now, so it can't be too bad. <laughs> awesome. So, Honey Badger, you're quantitative trading background. Uh, you mentioned kind of offline. You've worked at some funds in the U.S., New York, elsewhere. How did you get? How did you get here today? Like the Bowtide, Wall Street Playboys roadmap. When did you start like following that blog or their Twitter and their books? Yeah, yeah, sure. So <laughs> I Badger One um, had a friend, uh, one of my best friends, who had been following Wall Street Playboys probably for as long as I can remember, probably for, you know, was it like five, 10 years? And it was this, I think around February, you know, he'd, he'd always brought it up, but I never really, uh, <laughs> never really thought too much about it. Although whenever I'd read the pieces, they were always good. But around this February, he, he kept bothering me and he was like, hey, there's this thing called STX, you should buy stx stacks i was like you know i wasn't too into crypto then and i was like what is this stx thing and you know he gave me the spiel about it and i still didn't really get it and then he he kept pestering me about it and said wall street playboys was really recommending it and i was like if he's going to keep bothering me about it why don't i just go buy some so then i bought some <clears throat> and it went up quite a bit i think shortly after and and then after that i i followed you know the twitter account a bit more and they got wall street playboys at the time got a few more uh calls right and so that was pretty surprising what time frame is this like what year roughly oh this is this year so okay okay earlier this year you know stacks was at like 0.8 or so right. uh 80 cents I when i bought it and then you know, I bought it on my friend's recommendation who had bought it on uh, BTB's recommendation. For me, it was basically a blind buy. I just bought it because he was such a close friend of mine and was asking me to be right. <laughs> very convinced about it. I was, getting his, I was getting his parents to buy it as well. That oh. really took me by surprise. Um, so I got in and then <laughs> made a little bit of money on that, which was kind of fun. And then um yeah and then i started reading the subject and getting more involved on on twitter um and then i dragged badger 2 into this uh badger 2 i think uh hadn't really wasn't really on the btb train yet but um dragged him and badger 3 uh into this shortly after yeah yeah we uh it was badger 2 and uh so definitely uh what badger one is saying is uh you know getting into it was uh, more recent in terms of the BTB train. But prior to that, I mean, uh, I guess I kind of day traded uh, Ethereum a little bit, you know, over the years um, without really knowing kind of what it was. And then um, kind of just, you know, with uh, probably with with the around around last year, maybe um, when 
there were some some like rumblings in the central bank, Federal Reserve, you know, things that were kind of going on, and then mm-hmm. uh, just kind of things were connecting the dots. Where you know, I was just thinking, uh, boy, like you know, this inflation inflationary aspect. You know, we just keep the money just keeps kind of coming out. But like, uh, you know, luckily, luckily we hadn't seen any kind of inflation yet, and then. Um, I think everything really kind of clicked together in, in that one interview with uh, Ross and um, Sailor for, uh, you know, they did the, basically, I think, like almost like a master class in Bitcoin, really, um, and kind of what it's all about. And that really kind of clicked together for me in terms of, you know, just, just Bitcoin being, uh, you know, being this uh, hedge and kind of anti-inflationary anti, uh, uh, aspect of everything. And so... Uh, and so that that was really just the entryway into learning more about uh, learning more about you know the, the fundamentals of the system, the journey that Bitcoin has kind of taken with like SegWit and you know the kind of civil war that's happened, and uh, you know I, you can't really discount the story behind Bitcoin in terms of how robust it is, and then beyond that, anti-fragile, you know, like right? Exactly, exactly, totally, and um, and then beyond that, you know, just diving more into Obviously, I like Ethereum too, um, and so all the the DeFi network. And so, you know, once you're once you're kind of in the matrix, it just kind of goes from there. Right, <laughs> so. right. You take the pill and choose. The video you mentioned, Badger Two, with Michael Saylor and was it Ross? Yeah, Ross uh, Stevens, I believe. Is he? Is he the New York Digital? Yes. Digital. Yeah, okay. Guy. So that masterclass, if I'm remembering correctly, was Michael Saylor explaining to a bunch of other corporations how MicroStrategy adopted Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Right. And also the uh, conversation that he had with Ross, where Ross basically explained his vision. Uh, you know, he was saying at that point, he was like, you know, once you really start thinking in terms of Bitcoin, um, then the volatility and whatnot kind of goes away. And like, I really uh, pondered that, that statement for quite a while, thinking like, okay, well, what does that really mean? And so... Uh, you know, I guess now it's a, a kind of obvious to us, right? Like one BTC equals one BTC. <laughs> so, uh, so if we just kind of hold on to that, then uh, everything else is just, you know, the 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 the, enc- the encryption method that kind of backs Bitcoin along with the along with the path that it's taken. So, like you know, how much everybody who has adopted Bitcoin um, kind of believes in it, believes in the story. I mean, that's just like you said, it's anti-fragile, and so. Um, you know, we, we don't know where the future will bring us, but it's certainly probably the most robust thing that we have currently against uh, central centralization, against kind of central manipulation, so on and so forth. Now, of course, Badger 1 and 2, you have that background in algorithmic trading. So I'm assuming your technical math is maybe your second language or third language after English. How does the the math in the white paper, the cryptography i mean when you first read the white paper what was your your first impression how did you kind of wrap your brain around that what satoshi did sure i mean uh i guess when i first read the white paper actually this was a while back right it was interesting but it didn't really uh i'll be honest like it didn't you know it was uh it was an interesting thing but it wasn't the light bulbs didn't quite click at the time, um, but you know, over time, these things kind of uh, you learn about the trust problem, um, 
you learn about how um, how you know that how Bitcoin basically solves the trust problem, and and you really kind of have to how to have to have to dive in. I mean, there's that um, um, there's that book uh, I've been reading it recently. Uh, hang on, what? Let me see here. What was that book called? Uh, oh yeah, just mastering Bitcoin. Uh, mastering with, Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Andreas. So. Yep. Yep. Andreas. Yeah. So yeah, I watched an interview with him too, and so super legit. And uh, so you know, you kind of dive in there, and and you see, okay, this is, uh, you know, you, you just want to try to get in as as low level as possible. Um, the the algorithm itself is. Um, you know, you, you kind of start understanding. So, so you understand that the um, the uh, you know things very things really really cool kind of come up. Like you know, okay, so uh, with the mining situation, right? Let's say let's take the mining situation happening right now. Um, a lot of my friends are like, oh, okay, well, China controls the mining situation, and so you know this is uh, this is really bad, and like you know what what's really going on. So there's still still a lot of high level buzz that's kind of going around with people and you know it's kind of like until you really look um until until this until you know there's like kind of i don't know some some kind of mass adoption like until this kind of the bitcoin system enters a vernacular like i think it's still kind of pretty hard for people to really dive in and understand like what is a bitcoin right like you know if if we kind of take a stab at it right like bitcoin is really the ledger itself right the, the bitcoin ledger itself and it's backed by this algorithm cryptographic algorithm and um and so you know one of the one of the questions that people have is like oh okay well what's with all this mining stuff and that's happening and so as you learn more about the algorithm i mean you kind of understand how organically this whole system has kind of cropped up because you know there's nothing really that special about these uh gpu mining systems that are happening right like what's actually happening is the algorithm itself has these steps and um, instead of, uh, you know, instead of having your computer do these algorithms, um, they have, you know, special chips that are basically, you know, they're basically um, hard, hard coding the, al the algorithm itself into the circuits. And so these are essentially dumb computers, not like smart computers that only do the, uh, the, the you know, the hashing and the mining algorithms. Um, and so you can imagine, okay, so what happened in, in China probably like, there was cheap energy, cheap electricity, you know, people saw that, okay, Bitcoin prices or, you know, crypto prices in general are kind of going up. So, hey, you know, like we could just buy some of these computers, hook it up to our, you know, like our dam right here or, you know, coal mine over here, um, you know, coal, coal, electric, electricity, you know, whatever power source they have and, and make a, you know, make a dollar out of this. Like, so it was really just probably, I would imagine like, citizens you know getting real um, entrepreneurial essentially and then now i think what's really happening is um the government's really cracking down on that and so it's really uh, a loss for the people essentially and so um yeah i think it's just the more that you learn about the situation learn more about the algorithm really try to dive in and try to explain everything in simple terms then the more you kind of see how the whole ecosystem how kind of robust and organic that it kind of came up and you know, honestly, like everything in general just kind of goes from uh, something complex into eventually something simple enough, right? You have to imagine that like in order for crypto to really work, like it's got to be something where today it takes somebody like Andrea or Ross to really, you know, put it out to people to really explain it. But 
eventually it's got to be something that, you know, could be like a bedtime story or like something that like a six-year-old learns in kindergarten or something. It's like, oh, here's, here's cryptography and here's, you know, here's why the money system works. And it'll just click for people right then and there. Like it's got to be something simple enough and we'll probably eventually get there. And, uh, you know, kind of once we get there, then obviously, you know, the system has made it, but also just, you know, it kind of takes away any kind of uh, questions that some people still have today about like, well, what, what, what the heck really is cryptocurrency? And like, you know, what do I do with this? Is it safe? Is it a scam, et cetera? So. Do you see that financial literacy evolving where people actually understand what Bitcoin is or more evolving to blockchain works in the background and same user interface, people are interacting with it and they have no idea. Yeah, I think that um, it's going to be a combination of both probably is, is how, at least I see it. I mean, Badger, one, uh, you know, you have some thoughts too, for sure. Just jump in. But like, I think, uh, you know, it's like if we take by analogy uh, the Internet today, right, like everybody knows how to use it, uh, you know, pretty much. Everybody knows how to use it, but you know, do, do people, how many people really understand protocol switching and stuff? I mean, even I, <laughs> I probably don't. So, uh, but, um, but nevertheless, right, like the, there's still things that, again, it's like the, the uh, teenager today or even like the elementary school student today knows that would seem like magic or, you know, rocket science or whatever it is to our ancestors, uh, even a few, a couple generations back, right? It's like, oh, you know, um, there's uh, like, you know, whatever it is, there's a satellite connection or there's some other, you know, there's, you know, there's uh, cables underneath, fiber optic cables. Like these are kind of concepts, you know, how, how do, you know, like uh, a kid can probably un understand like, okay, how do I call, you know, somebody, call my grandparents or something from an ocean away? Like they'll be curious about these things and they'll get, a general idea of that. Similarly, like cryptocurrency would probably be something where, you know, people understand, have a basic idea about like how secure it is maybe, or, um, you know, like the decentralized aspect of it, um, how they can maybe spend it, how they can maybe use a decentralized application um, and, and the benefits of that over, let's say, um, doing something in a more centralized way, right? Like maybe one day, you know, you, you buy a home on a decentralized app and, you know, you look back at history and you, you see all the like escrow and, and the attorney and all that kind of stuff that has to happen. And that looks like just looks like history. <laughs> so, just looks yeah, like I history. Think, yeah. What's it looking like without being too specific in you know, your employment line of business? You know, what is algorithmic or quantitative finance are, are guys moving over to? applying the same method to trading cryptocurrency instead of equities, for example? Sure. Um, yeah, I think like, you know, there's always going to be activity, let's say in traditional finance, right? So no, so, uh, you know, these activities are not going to go away, are not going to go away, excuse me. And, um, but definitely, you know, you can find plenty of layman articles that, that show like people who, uh, I think we saw a Bloomberg article recently that was like, oh, you know, things that used to work, I don't know, 20 years ago or something in uh, traditional finance, traditional asset classes are now suddenly working again in, in uh, crypto. Um, yeah, I, I suppose like crypto probably right now, it's kind of like, I mean, it's just, 
kind of uh, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I like uh, neither of our institutional memory is probably probably long enough to uh, you know comment very heavily on you know what it was like, let's say in the whatever 70s, 80s, 90s, you know whatever it is, um, too much. But it's uh, it's probably some combination of like there's heavy institutionalism at, at some levels, and then also some levels it's just kind of like probably uh, scalping small caps or micro caps or something like that. <laughs> right, right. The same uh, greed and degeneracy in, in different forms. Yeah, yep, for sure. Is there a way that you would approach modeling the volatility in crypto right now? I mean, if you wanted to apply some sort of model to it to uh, at least, you know, guide your own trades on an individual level. Do you think there's utility to that, given that most of us aren't really trading with that much capital to begin with? Sure. So um, I guess to maybe put some more uh, flesh around that question, like, so so I guess we're just, Sponge, are you asking uh, kind of how do we maybe anticipate the volatility or, or what? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm asking at a very high level. You know, we have a lot of people that are going to be listening to this that are trying to do a little bit of day trading or something similar, right? And, you know, if you're operating on a small time frame, then, you know, some kind of modeling is occasionally useful. I mean, more than just like drawing lines in a screen haphazardly saying, oh, well, it looks like it's going this way, right? So, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, yeah, so... Yeah, I'll just speak, I guess, to my thoughts on this. I mean, we're, we're both just kind of exploring, you know, this, this whole area, too. And so nothing, uh, you know, nothing, I, I don't think, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, none of this is financial advice, <laughs> obviously. But uh, the, uh, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is the volatility is extremely high. And so, I don't know, something like uh, 50%, was it, Badger one? Something 50 to 100. Yeah, annual. something something extremely high um whereas uh yeah so like you know i i don't know like traditional hedge funds and whatnot like you know they target like uh if they get something like they they try i guess so so two things right so s p 500 i think you know traditionally the volatility is something like 25 percent or so give and take um you know annual on an annual basis so this is like double triple quadruple that and then, um, you know, we don't even have to get into bonds, right? So bonds is like, you know, super low volatility. So, so keeping that in mind, I mean, it's like, it's kind of what, what uh, BTB has been saying. Like, you know, you don't really want to take much leverage here because you'll, uh, you'll get blown out pretty quickly. I mean, think of leverage as just like a multiplier on, on, what, you're, on what you're doing essentially, right? So it's like if you uh, multiply by two, on something that's 50%, then uh, it's very easy. It's like, you know, and there's, so, okay, so back up one second. So what is, what is volatility, right? So volatility is really just thinking, imagine, imagine you don't know what the future is like. And so this is just kind of like, you can either move to the left or to the right, you know, saying let's, let's suppose left is down and right is up. So, you know, uh, even if, even if like, uh, even if, crypto yield, you know, like on, like, let's say long-term crypto was, uh, let's call it 0% returns, which I don't believe it is, but whatever, you know, let's say it's 0%. Then in a given year, you know, just by chance, you could be up like 50%, you could be down 50%, you could be up a hundred percent, you could be down a hundred percent. I mean, these are all within that kind of like, you know, bell curve distribution. That's probably, uh, 
that could shake out. So then, um, given that, I mean, if you're levered up at all, then, uh, you know, then uh, you can, well, so you can't, you probably can't be down 100% if you're not levered up. So I guess we can put that out there. But, you know, if you're levered up at all, then you could very easily just, let's say, you're, again, lever up 2x, it just randomly shakes, shakes down 50%, then you're stopped out. Uh, so so look, maybe we can elaborate, actually. Yeah. Sorry, maybe, maybe we can elaborate on the thresholds for the leverage. So you know, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but the way that crypto leverage works, especially, you know, the percentage that it can drop before you get liquidated is inversely proportional to the amount of leverage you take, right? So say I were to take 5x leverage, then if it goes down even 20%, I'm, I'm gone. But if I take 2x, it's 50 if I were to take, you know, three X, it's somewhere in between, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and, on that uh, note, I want to touch on the asymmetry in percentage win versus loss, right? If you lose 10%, it takes about 11% to get back. You yep. lose 50%, it takes a hundred percent to get back. Right. 80% takes 500%. So there's just nuances. Asymmetry. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So those are, both aspects of how dangerous kind of this is um uh on sponge's point um yeah for sure like you know you can just think about it like if you're taking let's say you have like a thousand dollars in your account and uh you go you decide to go buy you know two thousand dollars worth of bitcoins and so you know if uh bitcoin move is bitcoin starts moving down you know like they might stop you out earlier but as long as it moves down like a thousand dollars and you have nothing left in your account. So whatever brokerage or whatnot protocol that you're on, like they're going to stop you out because you have no more money. So they take your thousand dollars away. They sell the, re they sell the rest of your Bitcoin because your Bitcoin is worth a thousand dollars. The, uh, the, the, the brokerage is covered. Uh, you know, the broker is covered because they have, they get their $2,000 back from you and from selling off the Bitcoin and you're left with nothing. So in that case, you know, you took two X leverage, uh, Bitcoin moved down 50%. You essentially moved down 100%, and you lost everything. So that's how that would, uh, you know, that's kind of a simple illustration of that. And yeah, for sure, you know, on a daily basis, um, if you're taking leverage, I think the uh, like if it's a frequent kind of moving up and down, then that's uh, that's gonna, you know, that's like uh, like Barb is saying, it's like it's it's it makes it harder to kind of climb back up. Now, the the opposite is also true, right? So if you're uh, you know, if, well, the opposite is true if you decide to do this. So if you uh, decide to be a you know, side lever up 2x and your thing moves up, um, let's say, you know, you're, you're, you're now up, I don't know, like 200%, you can now take more leverage. So if you're in a trending market, I guess, uh, you know, the leverage can actually help you boost your returns even more. But that's the kind of the trick and the hard part is like knowing when you're trending and when uh, obviously right now we're either downtrending or kind of in a range-bound situation. On the subject of volatility, Badger 2, so we mentioned anti-fragile earlier. Are you familiar with Nisam Taleb and his books? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I, I'm obviously familiar with uh, Taleb and his books. Um, I'm actually kind of, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually going, going through that right now. <laughs> Black Swan, full by, full by randomness. Uh, anti-fragile, anti-fragile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, That's probably my favorite. It was four. Yeah, uh, so good. So definitely he, listeners. He's pretty far. So uh, let's actually talk about him for a second because that's pretty cool. Have you guys seen that he came out pretty hard against crypto? 
he was complaining about the volatility of Bitcoin a few months ago. Well, he uh, claims that the long-term valuation is necessarily zero. Oh, I've right. heard that. Yeah, well, I, haven't, well, I, haven't seen his, uh, I haven't seen his his argument or anything there yet. On on the subject to leave and, and volatility um, before moving into the maybe the valuation piece. So, Badgers one and two, you're familiar with standard deviations. Uh, maybe it's options measuring Vega. Is the practice of measuring volatility via standard deviations, in other words, a bell curve distribution or a mediocristan to quote Talib? Does that make sense, even for crypto, or should there there should be some kind of extremistan version, which is for listeners lower volatility, but then infrequent high impact events? Um, and not a bell curve distribution, kind of like a, a fat tail or a long tail. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly seems that way. Um, haven't, uh, you know, haven't, 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 haven't measured this out, let's say. Um, but it certainly seems that way where we're hit with uh, pretty fat events um, where you can, you know, I think this was uh, something that uh, BTB brought up too, right? Like, you know, you, you miss some of the really good days and you're, out on I don't know some giant returns, so it can you miss five so days. And you miss I, think, rights. I think one interesting point on the fat tailness of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is that you can kind of measure this by looking at kurtosis, which looks at I think the fourth kind of moment uh, of of say returns, and if you look at that, it's actually less fat tailed than you know the spy or the s p 500 so it's you know with all the hype about it being a, a quote-unquote risky asset class which it is because the volatility is high if you actually look at the kurtosis it's actually quote-unquote you know more normal than than spy is which is kind uh, of for, for listeners badger kurtosis is skewness of a distribution kurtosis is not uh quite skewness it it measures how heavily the distribution of say, returns tilts towards either the high, uh, very high, po highly positive extreme values or highly negative extreme values. Okay, yeah. so, okay. so, so, so kind the, of like uh, what direction that tail, that fat tail, if you will, is, is right. leaning towards? That's yeah, that would be skewed. So it's first moment is the returns, uh, second is the standard deviation, and the third is the skewness. So that, that would be directionality of, uh, of that, you know, like... Uh, the upside or downside, and then the fat, the actual thickness of those tails, is a kurtosis, and so kurtosis oh, is a neutral. Okay, okay. Yeah, the kurtosis is actually a neutral. Um, you know, from uh, from like, I guess from like an investor perspective, if you are not worried about risk, then kurtosis is actually neutral because it's uh, you know it can be good or bad. Right. Skewness, right. you definitely want to hopefully be positive skewed, um, but kurtosis is definitely kind of the enemy of anybody who wants to really. Or, you know, I guess if enemy of anybody who uh, isn't cognizant of their risks, it could also be, I guess, beneficial if you're aware of this kurtosis, but other people may not be. Yeah, so that's pretty interesting, Badger One. I uh, I recall you actually, now, now that you mentioned that, I recall, I recall that uh, tweet. <laughs> yeah, I think the other interesting thing related to that is that if you look at risk-adjusted performance of cryptocurrencies, which we, we did a little bit ago, which is... Um, you know, you take something like the return and divided by the standard deviation, you get what people call a sharp ratio. So it's kind of like how much return are you getting per unit of risk that you take? Um, 
you know, cryptocurrencies in general looked better than other asset classes like the stock market or, you know, what have you uh, on, you know, risk adjusted basis. So what I think both the kurtosis metric and the sharp metric kind of say is that although the, um, and volatility as well, I guess all three of them together say is that although cryptos have been very volatile, uh, you do get rewarded for that volatility. So you get rewarded for the volatility. There's the line. Plan B, I'm, I'm guessing Badger 1 and 2, you're both familiar with Plan B, stock-to-flow ratio. Um, well, we've seen the metric, yeah. So he did have a piece on sharp ratio comparing with traditional investments, equities, bonds, etc. And he also discusses uh, not random walk, what's the... Uh, Efficient market hypotheses. So you guys are uh, quant traders. What are your thoughts on the efficient market hypotheses or lack thereof? And, and where do you kind of see crypto falling in it? Is it efficient, semi, or not at all? Somewhere well, um, I think efficient markets hypothesis, just a, a few quick thoughts on it. Um, I th- it seems like a good approximation, you know, if you're an academic um, and trying to study the markets and what's going on. But I think if you're a trader, it's kind of an extremely toxic idea to have in your head, right? Because it's saying that basically you can't make money. And if you believe that you, you won't make money. Um, um, and I think in practice as a trader, as an individual, uh, you can make money. So um, in, in a lot of ways, um, I guess uh, um, we, we don't, we try not to uh <laughs> Think about think about it too much. Right. Yeah. So actually, uh, you know, to maybe bring uh, again, like I'm only just kind of getting into anti-fragile here, but like to bring back, bring it back. This is, I think, efficient market hypothesis is actually kind of a fragile idea. Um, it's really just you know kind of shoving off the responsibility of saying like, oh, you know, every, everything that could be done has already been kind of done, and you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna do anything here. And so, um, there's one thing actually. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, yeah, this, this is something that over time, you know, it's something that I think, like, especially as Badger once said, you know, in academia, they, they really like this idea. And so kind of coming out of, you know, school or whatever, you know, you kind of almost get indoctrinated. And then the more you think about it, the more that you see, the more you think, like, boy, is this uh, <laughs> it's kind of a fragile yeah. idea here. I, I like this part, actually. You can find it on on the Wikipedia page itself for efficient market hypothesis. Um, I'd like to just, maybe this quote here. Um, so it says in, in his book, The Reformation Economics, economist and financial analyst Philip Tilkington has argued that the efficient market hypothesis is actually a tautology masquerading as a theory. He argues that taken at face value, the theory makes a banal claim that the average investor will not beat the market average, which is right. a tautology. And when pressed on this point, Pinkington argues that EMH proponents will usually say that any actual investor will converge with the average investor given enough time, and so no investor will beat the market average. But Pinkington points out that when proponents of the theory are presented with evidence that a small minority investors do, in fact, beat the market over the long run, these proponents then say that these investors were simply lucky. 
So then this guy <laughs> argues that <laughs> the idea that anyone who diverges from the theory is simply lucky insulates the theory from falsification. And so uh, basically the guy argues that the theory falls back into being a tautology or a pseudoscientific construct. Right. And, well, uh, it, so it, I think... It, yeah. Beyond just pseudoscience, it seems like a very convenient rationalization for, you know, trying to persuade large numbers of people not to bother even trying to get any alpha. Right, right, right. It's really quite sad. And, you know, thinking about when I was earlier in my career, I had almost gone into that that camp because it's just it's so pervasive in, in some of these institutions and um, and a lot of people do kind of get sucked into that and, you know, throw up their hands and say, we'll just in, invest in the uh, index fund and, you know, what happened. I mean, and I think maybe for some people, that's probably not a terrible idea. Like if, you, if you're, you know, completely uneducated on the subject and you really are actually going to be choosing basically randomly, then at that point, you know, an index fund just saves you some time, maybe a few fees. Right. Uh, but if you're not stupid, like, come on, like, you <laughs> can you could do a little better than that for sure. efficient market hypothesis seems to be the cop-out. If uh, I had too much to drink last night is a cop-out for, well, I won't say the demographic on the podcast, but you know what I'm talking about. If COVID is the cop-out <laughs> excuse for institutions and governments to lower quality raise prices, then maybe efficient market hypotheses is the cop-out excuse for uh, I'm not a good investor or I don't want to try. So I'm going to pretend that uh, it's impossible and I'm just going to buy index funds. Yeah. Right. And yeah. to be fair, it is pretty difficult to make money in, in some markets, especially you know competitive markets like U.S. large cap, for instance. But that's not to say that, you know, capable people, if they put their minds to it, you know, can't do it. They, they surely can. And I think this kind of, you know, it's become almost like an ideology prevents, uh, you know, fully capable people from, you know, making full use of their skills. So. I mean, yeah. hey, hey, sorry, you know, it's, re it's really bad because like I have a friend who's, um, who's like a senior dev at Bloomberg and he's like, he's absolutely brilliant. Right. You know, and you know, he's involved in doing, he, he writes their language for the Bloomberg terminals. And so he, he's around, you know, a lot of finance people all day long, hero stuff, you know, if he actually wanted to make a few investments, I'm sure he could, you know, read up on something that you know he believes will, you know, go the right way in the next few years. But he just goes and buys the index fund too because it's it's a full out religion for people who have gone down the rabbit hole with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the uh, you know one thing that I will say that you know I guess thinking about efficiency, um, you know, does bear fruit when you look at a price. And the price, it's, it's often useful to look at the price of something, especially in call it, you know, like large cap, even maybe like Bitcoins and, and just to say, you know, the price is actually what it is. Uh, it is what it is. Like that is, that is like a fair market value. Like if enough people are kind of looking at it, that is the fair market value. So this is actually useful if, uh, you know, some people can become kind of too dogmatic the other way where, you know, they, uh, well, they become dogmatic one way or the other where, you know, they might say like, okay, well, um, you know, they might have some kind of, uh, you know, fancy valuation model for something and then the price falls and they buy into it. And then, you know, they, they, uh, you know, the, the price, let's say falls again and they buy into it again. And then, 
uh, and then uh, you know they they keep thinking that this is going to work. Well, some, somebody else might actually have more information than you. Somebody else is doing something, and so the price you're getting at the time that you're getting it might actually be as efficient as, as it could be at that time. So this is, um, I guess, you know, thinking about Bitcoin pricing right now. I mean, it's kind of just hovering around the uh, thirty thousand ish kind of uh, kind of value valuation right now. So you know, when it comes to like the bulls and the bears, it's like. <laughs> It's like that's that's a pretty that's that's a pretty high price still. So you know, sure, it's had a pullback, um, but you know, as for some reason, we think that this price is fair, and so there's no need to call. There's maybe no use calling you know Bitcoin whatever you want to call it, like Bitcoin three thousand, Bitcoin some low price if you're a bear, and you know to say that okay now it's gonna the next stop is like you know sixty thousand, a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand. Well, there's definitely barriers to those things too. So the price is where it is for some kind of reason. So there's that efficiency uh, aspect um, and it's useful to, th to keep that in mind but I would say sponge you know like with your friend and kind of with everybody who's uh, in this pseudo religion pseudo science um, yeah so for some reason I think people like equilibrium so I, I guess like maybe like efficient market hypothesis presents a nice equilibrium it's like okay this thing is just gonna be you know as efficient as it gets the system is is like the system is what's real. Everybody who kind of fights the system creates a system that's quote real, and so you know it's a nice, uh, nice balance, I guess, as a mental construct. But instead of actually embracing that kind of balance, I think that you know it's possible that uh, sure, like maybe whatever the numbers are, 99% of mutual funds don't end up beating an index fund. Well, maybe that's a system that we actually. Maybe that's a better system. Maybe that is a beautiful system for humanity itself, right? Like the struggle is part of uh, part of the meaning itself, and so everybody should kind of roll up their sleeves and try to do it. They think they can do it, but just be prepared for somebody else to be better than you, and just uh, to be humbled by kind of what you see. And so I think the true efficiency is just knowing that there are people better than you, but that doesn't mean that we have to say efficiency is the end goal. It's uh, you know, it's really about the struggle itself and, and the chaos that's kind of there. Do, do you, would you think that, so cause here's the thing that occurs to me, right? That if we're talking about efficient market hypotheses, it, it seems like the idea that everything would converge to some average in the end and that you know, your individual efforts wouldn't actually help you in the long run. I mean, a lot of it seems more like a psychological effect that's being imposed on people as opposed to something that's being borne out in the math. Like, I'm not yeah. going to lie. Like when, like when I hear it and like from a very visceral perspective, like, like my gut instinct is to yell out like, huh, sounds like communist propaganda to me, but like, okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, you have, know. I, have either of you guys read psycho cybernetics? I've heard no, but I want to hear negative. about it. Yeah. Okay. I've seen that book floated around on in the jungle. And I just started it, and um, yeah, it's it's really quite fascinating uh, so far. Um, it starts out; it's a plastic surgeon who describes how um, when he operates on people, he's not just operating on their body, but on their minds as well, because they change their physical image and it reshapes their mind, and it turns them into an entirely different person, Pe uh, you know, human being who can do different things. So EMH is a lot like that in in some ways, if you really um, believe in it and and drink the Kool-Aid, you know, you, you won't be able to make more money in the markets because um, you won't be able to see it. Uh, um, 
So yeah, I mean, it's, it is kind of to your point, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Inevitably, if you start telling people that nothing they do, like, I don't know, like the whole thing just seems like stupidly suspect from the start. I'm not going to lie. Right. It it seems like you're going to tell people, you know, okay, nothing you do will make a difference in the end. There's no like new profit. There's no value added or something. I mean, is that really what we're getting at here? What, that there isn't some way to be unusually good at making the market more efficient? I mean, like the gains in, uh, you know, capital allocation, I think the whole game is that if you allocate the capital most efficiently to the companies and, you know, services that most deserve the capital, then you gain because they have the right amount of capital that they deserve and therefore they profit more and the whole market goes up, right? That's like the whole argument behind finance adding value, right? Um, so, like, are we supposed to just pretend that, like, everyone is equally good at doing that? It's <laughs> so like, oh, yeah, it's fine. We're all the same good at picking out all these companies. It's so, unequal opportunity, equal results, right? Apparently, yeah. That's that's that's, that's, that's what they would have you believe. I mean, that's why the whole thing is silly. It just has everything exactly backwards. Yeah, yeah. No, I think when, you know, you guys are respond like, when you say, okay, your gut is, this is communist propaganda, I mean, your gut is, uh, I mean, you're kind of singing to a choir, like your gut is a healthy place, in my opinion. But for a lot of people, I mean, uh, I don't know, it's maybe the, some, some kind of like mental, mentally, you know, we just uh, like to kind of medicate away our, our, uh, our, our pain in some ways, like whether by ideas or, or some other methods, um, you know, where just they want things to fit into kind of a neat box and so efficient market hypothesis is kind of like this neat box it's like there's a system and like you said it's like the capital kind of bubbles to the top and, and so on and uh and uh you know you like can write down capital. the formulas for it <laughs> right but there's on no the subject to, yeah, sorry, yeah just go ahead on the subject of efficient market hypotheses and i'm i'm assuming we're all familiar with plan b stock to full ratio uh, now, for listeners, Substack, stock-to-flow ratio is why you get the meme of 100K Bitcoin by Christmas 2021. Stock-to-flow is the inverse inflation rate. 2% inflation rate would be 100 stock-to-flow, excuse me, 50 stock-to-flow. Uh, stock-to-flow ratio uses this linear regression comparing the logarithmic of the market cap of Bitcoin to the logarithmic of that stock-to-flow ratio or inverted inflation rate. Uh, Badger one and two, you guys are, are math technical background. Kind of, what's your perspective on this Plan B stock to, to flow ratio that he's used for both Bitcoin, gold, real estate, etc. We haven't looked at that metric. Uh, I, I think to, to answer that question fairly, we we would have had to look at the data, uh, which we 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 haven't done. But you know, I think um, a nice test would just be to backtest it. Like you think that this metric predicts returns, then if you you know went long or short Bitcoin when the metric hit certain thresholds historically, you know how well did you actually do? Um, um, I've seen the, the the nice pretty pictures of the bands and the the prices going you know and the stock to flow you know bands and it reverting, but so far I haven't seen someone um, show results from an actual. Uh, strategy, which I think, you know, practically speaking is what, what we actually care about. Or may- maybe there has been one and I, I just haven't seen it. Now, of course, the strategy Plan B proposes is continuously dollar cost average into Bitcoin. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a pretty good strategy, right? 
right? right. You know, dollar cost averaging to Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, a few large cap crypto. I mean, it, it would be like the, the smarter version of, you know, the what efficient markets would tell you to do for, uh, for stocks. Right, yeah. It, it does seem the stock to flow. So this came out a little over two years ago when Bitcoin was floating around 3K. Uh, that Christmas time this year is a test, right? So the first stock to flow predicted 50K. It hit that. The next one's predicted 100K by Christmas of 21. But the, the newer one, Plan B, is the cross asset, which predicts almost a $300,000 Bitcoin by Christmas. But that's where he took the, the same regression equation and he took the, the stock to float ratio for gold and it gave him the accurate market cap for gold. He took the real estate, accurate market cap for real estate, diamonds, platinum, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, silver. For me, and, and I'm, not, I'm not technical, I'm not a quant background. If you take the same regression equation and you apply it to other assets or you, other inputs and you get the right answer, is that not a pretty damning uh yeah that's a good sign sign. that's yeah that's a good good sign that's definitely great i think you know people in this industry would call that an out of sample test where it's like you fit this model on bitcoins and then you check it on data it hasn't seen before and if it works there that's um pretty good evidence right um but I, i think another thing to keep in mind when you're doing this kinds of analysis is um what what the horizon is for predicting kind of, you know, returns. I, I don't, I'm not too familiar with how they did the studies, but if you're predicting, you know, say returns out it, I think the numbers you just tossed out were like by the end of the year or something like that. Right. Right. Christmas so if you're trying to predict returns out, you know, several months uh, or a year or more um, then, you know, how many data points do you really have uh, right, right. through that? Right. So that, that would be one, one kind of, um, point that, and it depends how they did the analysis. That um, it, it may have been, it may be fine, but that that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I guess I'm more of a behavioral kind of guy, and so you know, like like Badger once said, you know, we haven't looked at the data itself, but you know, as, as we're even talking about this, I'm just thinking, you know, we we should we should also be trying to form because this thing is based on this regression, which is which is good and all, and but you know, we should try to think about some. Uh, other hypotheses around specific, um, let's say, like call them like events or specific structures around this equation, um, and kind of like what would what would be a good question to ask? What would, what would an answer be to that question? And then like, can we see the evidence of that? Can we make a prediction of that and see see what the see what kind of comes out of it? So, for example, um, I guess I guess I'm kind of aware it's like okay, so. Uh, this the stock to flow, you know, we're talking about um, some some of this has to do with mechanism of Bitcoin itself, right? So, you know, the question I, I'm curious about is, okay, so why does this work? Like, why why are, why are we making these forecasts for what the price is? So, one component of this is going to have to be, okay, like you know, Bitcoin mechanism itself, and and you know how the the circulating supply, how frequently you know another Bitcoin comes comes to circulation. But another aspect of it is just going to be, well, since this this price pricing is happening. Let's say we're saying Bitcoin hundred thousand. The pricing is happening in in uh, U.S. token terms, and so right. you know, some of this has has to do with like the M one or M two money supply as well, and the velocity um, at which money is being exchanged. And so um, 
So I think we can probably ask some interesting questions about okay, given where, you know, like this is, so let's say, let's say Bitcoin, let's say according to this model, so far we've been accurate about many things. And let's say Bitcoin doesn't hit a hundred thousand by December. Let's say it actually hits like, I don't know, like we're at 30,000 now. Let's say it goes to like 55,000 by December. Okay. Well, so we're off. And so, you know, somebody who wants to criticize the model might be like, aha, see, it was wrong. Well, actually, you know, to me, that's that's almost it's like it's it's like great because we started out with a pretty strong hypothesis, pretty interesting hypothesis, and now we have a deviation from the data. So it's like so then now we want to ask it's like okay, what's changed? I don't have the answer to that, but you know, those are uh, it's 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 really the beginning. Like if you get something wrong, it's really to me it's like the beginning to asking more questions to figure out what it is that you missed and to try to form a, a stronger hypothesis next time to go to bat again next time with a stronger arsenal of uh, you know stronger toolkit, stronger thought process, rather than uh, just kind of saying like, you know, either, you know, accepting your loss and say, okay, that's it, or, or having somebody else, uh, you know, having somebody else just kind of laugh in your face and claim victory. So it gives you more constructive questions to ask. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So high level DJ and Island 2035, Badgers, honey badgers, y'all have been in traditional finance years. Or actually, I'll back up here. Have you, have either of you read Sovereign Individual? We both read some of it. I'm mostly, mostly through it. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually, so I picked it up and then probably like 75% of the way through now. Okay, so you've, you've gotten the meat of it. Uh, (laughs) Takeaway impression from Sovereign Individual written in 1997. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think you know, very powerful book. Um, the you know, obviously, it talks about uh, cryptographic currencies uh, before <laughs> before any of us ever heard of bitcoins, probably, um, or even thought about right, right. this possibility. So that's pretty impressive. And um, and uh, you know, I think interesting enough, um, it lays out some. I like how it lays out some of the facts in the beginning. Um, about kind of where the world was, right? Like the story about um, how we kind of started out as, uh, uh, let's see, so like, you know, hunter-gatherers, scavengers, where we had a lot of land, a lot of resources. Um, you know, I think, I forget now what it was like, basically it was like the ratio of land to people was something like if uh, you'd have to be like extremely, extremely wealthy today to have real estate of the size of, you know, our great, 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 great ancestors at the time and uh and then going from there to basically how farming really uh led to the evolution of violence and so how you know like protection of property kind of like well so farming basically evolved due to you know these these uh, pressures from uh from lack of resources and and then you know there from their end we have uh we have violence and then quickly almost almost very quickly we end up with the industrial age that we have today. Um, so I really like that story. I mean, it's, uh, I, you know, I'm not, I'm no expert in anthropology or anything like that. Um, uh, but definitely that I think was one of the strongest things in the book where it felt like it was kind of reasoning from first principles in a way about how we get from, uh, our ancestral roots into kind of where we are today. And so where, you know, like this is like, so, so why violence is such a kind of important, uh, you know, important concept 
to to think about, to ponder about, to to figure out where the balance of power is. Um, not in a you know like communist kind of way, but just you know just hard facts. It's like okay, well, who controls the power? And so you know like as that moves, then politics moves with it, not the other way around. I guess force theory of government. Right, right. And uh, I mean, incidentally, I was. Uh, I guess there's um, there's another book, um, Homo Deus. I don't know if you've heard of that or. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I started that one and then I kind of, I'm uh, kind of more into sovereign individuals right now, but they also started um, in the beginning laying out a pretty grim picture of, you know, of society back in the day, which really got me thinking. I mean, so, you know, something like, I believe it was, uh, I'm going to get these dates wrong, but something like in 1520 or so, um, you know, the, the Spaniards, I think went to Mexico and, population was something like 22 million and by 1580 so like you know only 60 years later the population was 2 million um and something like you know during the sun king's reign in france 15 percent of people were dying from starvation um whereas um you know that's people were literally dying from starvation so let, let alone people who uh who uh had kind of uh you know like who god knows what they were eating uh, you know, what percentage people were doing that. And so uh, the, the you know, I, I pretty much only got, I didn't get too far in that book, but the, the, the point that was being made there was also just like how we kind of come from these really grisly roots into quite a kind of nice condition that we're in today. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like this, this whole decentralization um, with, cryptocurrency i mean it's it's super important because uh you know we're kind of resting in a the the you know most prosperous most peaceful time of our of our uh of our history of human history and there's really no guarantee um and if we were to try to try to like if we wanted to believe that you know we kind of solved everything uh that would in my opinion be pretty foolhardy and so we don't know when we want you know when when something will hit that in our current uh, state of things that we can't really um, kind of work, work our way out of. And so uh, as much as we can be anti-fragile, right? So as much as we can kind of decentralize <laughs> of and give people the tools to really take our, take ourselves to the next level and to, to survive, to have backup plans, to be robust, um, then the better. And so I think, you know, crypto is definitely a part of that. And that's why, uh, you know, that's kind of, part of the picture that I see. And so sovereign individual, I think does a good job there too. Laying that out. What sort of backup plan do you anticipate implementing yourself? Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, to be honest, I mean, I think, well, for, for me, I think it's uh, long-term. Um, let's just, you know, I, I, I want to stay optimistic. So I, I hope, you know, we don't have to <laughs> bunker down or anything like that. But I think it's just, you know, in terms of what we can do here and now, I mean, obviously like, um, keep trying to contribute to cryptocurrency and decentralization in any way we can for, for individuals. Like, you know, we want to try to be healthy. We want to try to just, uh, you know, be as, uh, physically, um, fit and healthy as we can, can keep learning, uh, keep building authentic connections. Um, you know, things that really, uh, that seem real rather than things that kind of get us into, moments of uh where we lack where we feel like we lack agency where we feel like we lack real connections to people 
Um, I think these are these are things that hopefully will last beyond any storms, you know, that, that and will hopefully help us weather storms that uh, that come our way. Do you see a potentially ugly transition if, as sovereign individual suggests, there's this decline of nation states, mm-hmm. this loss and ability to tax through inflation and also direct taxation as people move their money, cyber money, as they called it 25 years ago? I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend. I mean, you know, to be honest, like I'll, I'll put it out here. I mean, I think one of the smartest things that the U.S. government can do right now is actually buy Bitcoins. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, it's really, it's, I, I, I haven't really thought through all the implications of, for example, what that would mean, but like, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of the value of, let's say the dollar or something like that and the value of Bitcoin itself. Um, but I think it's an interesting thought because, uh, you know, it's, it's a real hedge against, you know, on the one hand, the central bank kind of is obviously directly or indirectly uh and the treasury as well just kind of putting out all all this um all this printed money but on the other hand you know if you own a large supply of bitcoin itself um so that's kind of like an interesting hedge as well um so i guess that's kind of uh that's kind of preface where you know we're 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 at this kind of interesting time where there's definitely a lot of like tribalism in pretty much you know a lot of like all aspects even uh and tr- somebody who really tries to be at the frontier of things try to or try to think outside the box uh, you know that's kind of looked down upon by so many institutions and committees and whatnot but at the same time i mean uh there's definitely a path where i feel like again to, to be a little bit more optimistic i think there's definitely a path where we just kind of gently go through and go through a transition. I mean, this is where perhaps like we have to kind of adopt more of a compromising mindset, whatever that means, where, um, you know, the more the it's kind of like, even if you think you're right, the, the harder you push against the system, sometimes the harder the system pushes back. Whereas right, right. if you know you're right, but you kind of, you know, keep a calm head and, uh, and kind of, just try to teach people what you know calmly and try to just have good conversations with people. Try to keep, keep you know, educating whoever's willing to listen. Try to find opportune times to kind of insert information to try to get people to see the light. You know, the hope is that eventually enough people kind of adopt the same mindset and uh, democracy as well as truth eventually kind of went out and changed the world, right? And so, um, you know, sometimes I feel like you often see people who, um, and you know, I don't blame them. It's like they learn something that <laughs> that almost seems like a conspiracy theory, or, or you know, if anybody, pretty much every anybody heard it, they'd be like, "Wow, that sounds like a conspiracy theory," but it's actually true. And uh, I, because nobody because yeah. nobody really listens to it, then they kind of lose their head over it, and they become even more kind of boisterous and and you know, really uh, almost unreasonable. And then the more people kind of just call them out for it, but. Um, but in reality, when you take a step back and you see like, okay, how do things, um, how do things change? Well, things actually change probably in really boring ways because that may be the only way that, I mean, I don't know, but like that may be one of the only ways that the world can change without 
you know, undue violence and uh, disruptions. It's just that, like, eventually the world changes and the people who are kind of the pioneers are kind of uh, just so jaded by that point, they don't even care anymore. Nevertheless, the world has changed and they've done a good deed. And and so if you, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just, if everybody just kind of sets aside their ego and just tries to try to move things forward in the best way they can, then all we can do is just kind of hope for the best. Back to first principles, it sounds like. What what fundamental, fundamentally changes civilization? Uh, and tying into, you mentioned hunter-gatherers to the agricultural revolution, industrial revolution. Technology changed. Right. We didn't have property or really war until we found a way to cultivate the land, yeah. tie ourselves to a specific location, and and then... Industrial age brought, well, falling the printing press and gunpowder 500 years ago in economies of scale. Returns to scale in size at a specific location. Factories, armies, employers, cities. Uh, it seems in sovereign individual is, is one argument that war and violence in the long run will decline because that returns to scale go away. You can't use an army to, or fiat inflation to tax. You can't use an army to co-opt others into doing what you want because now we have asymmetric encryption. Mm -hmm. you, you, you can't take away from everyone on the whim and nor is there an advantage to having a large army mm -hmm. asymmetry. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's, I think the at least in the foreword that I have in my book, you know, uh, I think it was by Peter Thiel, and he was just saying, you know, there's things that yeah. that uh, sovereign individual we should focus also on the things that it gets wrong, and so you know, I guess he he mentioned obviously like like the rise of China, and so the the state becoming even stronger. Um, that might be actually like a you know kind of like you take the facts for what they are rather than hope that they change to become you know to fit the model of the book. Right. And so, yeah, for some reason, I guess there there could be periods where, um, you know, there's definitely things that kind, kind of can go against the, the model of what the book is saying. And so we do need to update the, the, the story, the model for kind of like what the facts are of the day. And uh, so, I don't, you know, there's definitely going to be who knows what happens. Like, you know, if uh, I suppose given given the, 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 the FUD that we've seen with uh, the, the mining, you know, the mining. The mining news have come out so with the energy uh, right the energy i mean some of this is like you look at it you're like okay well all the coins are on kind of like proof of stake are also moved down <laughs> and there's no there's you know there's no energy uh there's there's barely any kind of energy concerns there and so this is really just kind of like what we call beta it's just like okay everything's just kind of selling down um so you know who knows what happens if the the, the, the Fed releases their own coin or whatever, you know, whether that could do anything to the ecosystem. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't necessarily count it out um, for sure, but, but uh, nevertheless, I mean, it's, I think with any technology, you know, you could always kind of focus on the bad, but you could also definitely also see the good. Um, and sometimes by focusing too much on the bad, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, it can, it can really both distract as well as, um, cast a um, kind of put you in, put you down kind of on the wrong direction. I mean, 
Padre one and I have talked about this recently where, uh, you know, obviously for all the kind of faults that Twitter and social media today kind of have, um, and, you know, you could go at length thinking about those things and thinking about what the world was kind of like before we had these things, uh, before people were kind of able to be so easily gaslit over social media and, and all this other kind of stuff. But nevertheless, I mean, look at, look at us now, like we're able to connect, right? Like, so there's good coming out of social media too. And we're able to have these conversations uh, that we wouldn't have been able to have five years ago. I mean, <laughs> so, so, right, uh, right. right. So, so I think we just want to try to keep focusing on kind of what's good and try to evolve the system and over time to, uh, to, to really just take the, you know, just keep iterating and trying to take the bad from, uh, you know, from the good and kind of coming up with new versions of things because, you know, eventually, eventually, and it may, maybe after generations, maybe after a whole generation, so maybe we don't see it or something, but for how, for how terrible something can be, like eventually, you know, we reach a point where things are you know, better, let's say. And so if we just kind of keep aiming for that, then, somebody down the line will hopefully be able to kind of reap the benefits of that. And that's kind of decentralization as well. Like, you know, our minds, humans, we, we tend to gravitate towards what, uh, what we like. Sometimes that's kind of like our basis desires, but sometimes that's also like some really noble, um, noble, noble pursuits. And, uh, and so, you know, like, again, it's like with, let's say social media as an example, you know, we've evolved from kind of social media to having like podcasts and, so far, you know, that's, and everybody has, uh, you know, everybody has probably a favorite podcast at this point. And uh, so, you know, it's just what comes out of the other end of this that can be even better. You know, we should really hold out hope that those things will, will happen. Optimism. Yeah. And the yeah. other thing, too, that's kind of fun is that <clears throat> we're seeing social media evolve to include even transient mediums. Like there's something kind of wonderful about the fact that we can all hop on spaces too, right? In addition to the podcasts and the tweets and all of the other more permanent forms of media that we're otherwise restricted to, right? Yeah. Because we can, you know, in a, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, in a way that it's all returning back to nature, you know? You know, we, yeah. we started off with like books that were hard to write that were permanent. Then we moved on to TV that was you know, impermanent, but broad and centralized. Then the internet permanent, broad and now we're going back to having that scarcity which really gives the conversation something special right yeah yeah there's uh it's almost like there's definitely it's like a pendulum right where it kind of one thing you know this technology is breaking things apart you know inevitably there's probably going to be uh, a centralization around the current technologies that we use again where you know power law and whatnot things kind of aggregate into components like cryptocurrency probably go through this too you know everything is you know for us it's like everything is awesome right now but uh, eventually something will emerge that's going to be monolithic and it's going to be a headache um, but we can again hold out hope that we're going to move past that and decentralize once again and uh, back to nature as you say okay that part's pretty cool I imagine if we could actually, because I don't know, in a way, the decentralization is actually bringing us back to nature, right? There's actually, there's a whole vein of thought in relationship to the things we've been discussing tonight, in which it seems like humans are moving back to being like hunter-gatherer bands of 
like little tribes of people yeah. that will you know, sprint for a little bit, do a project, and then rest and instead of doing that nine to five grind for some large organization. Eat, sleep, poop, and capital F. I'm a big fan of all of those things. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, we're definitely fans of that. Um, human nature being what it is, I mean, it's, you know, we, we kind of like, um, like you said, there's this vein of things and we kind of say like, okay, there's, there's, uh, there's this, I guess, maybe this decentralization is good and we're kind of back to nature, but I mean, the people who kind of champion the system, the, the systems that are kind of antithesis, antithesis, you know, and antagonistic to, to the, to the nature approach. I mean, there's people in there too, right? So there's people who do enjoy being part of a monolithic kind of uh, group. They do enjoy the security. They enjoy not having to think about things. They enjoy having to be able to outsource um, kind of things that they could do on their own to, to, to like, you know, other other people or kind of other institutions or whatever, whatever have you basically not put in the effort themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's always going to be this tension and maybe that's really the, uh, and we can't, you know, we can't really discount those people either. Right. Like, you know, there's definitely, I can, I can understand why people, uh, depending on the situation they're in, depending on the age they're at, you know, there's, uh, there's real, um, there's something real, I guess, comforting as well as uh, life-saving about some of those institutions. And so uh, I think there's always this tension and uh, it only it's it's only when things, I think, become a little bit too stifling in one direction that then the pressure is kind of push us to kind of go another direction. Right. And so uh, and to try to do something else. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, speaking of books and kind of with sovereign individual, there was that passage about uh, and this is again like how technology really changes things but it has to it has to i think it has to be a combination of technology as well as the socioeconomic circumstances the social the social circumstances in which people have this urge to change so i guess you know whatever it was in the medieval times uh writing and reading were very precious commodities and you know it took a whole scriptorium of monks to transcribe you know the bible and then here comes the printing press and then all of a sudden uh you know we're able to basically mass produce uh bibles and so uh you know this is this is uh i didn't get to make this point earlier but i think like you know i guess whatever have you i don't know how everybody has learned their history but like in my impression it's like when we learn history let's say in uh elementary high school middle school you know we tend to learn about these pretty interesting facts, pretty interesting people like Martin Luther, okay, you know, Reformation or, or uh, Marie Antoinette, let them eat, let them eat cake. But really, um, what seems more real to me is the actual circumstances in which people were living. Again, it's like people were starving to death. It's like, it's not about this famous quote that he said, it's like the context. It's like, well, people were literally starving to death. And we have no idea what that's like for, you know, one in seven people that we know to just like, die because they had no, not enough food. And then for like, you know, I don't know, two or three other people to be eating God knows what. Uh, so nobody at the time was, <laughs> nobody at the time among those people were thinking about, wow, this quote that this person said, I mean, until I guess he said it, but, you know, and then whatever that triggered. But nevertheless, it's like, uh, you know, they were probably 
they were they were they were they were pushed on by by kind of what they uh by by their circumstances around them. similarly you know with the technology with books it's like okay well the printing press was invented and probably there was enough kind of pressures at the time where people said you know look i can i can learn this on my own and then and then you know enough people kind of saw the utility of that naturally like people gravitate towards you know they're oppressed enough it's like they gravitate towards freedom naturally and so this technology kind of brought them freedom and so we learn about um you know the the whatever it is reformation and so protestantism versus catholicism as this like great transition but it was really the printing press that was the driver of that um so i think you know we'll we'll just this this could just be again the pendulum right it's it's kind of like we're we're at this moment where a lot of things are kind of pushing pushing at the scenes pushing in a very monolithic direction and so hopefully you know this is a time where uh something like cryptocurrencies can really take us maybe to the next level <laughs> where we can be back to nature until until enough people kind of crowd into this system and then and then we need to build I mean, I don't even know how we do it, but I guess, uh, you know, I guess there may be, it could be that like, there's always going to be centralized coins around and that's, and that's going to have some, uh, more adoption in some sense than, uh, than something that's decentralized because people like that security. Badger, have you read the, uh, Bitcoin standard by Safadain? I haven't. So he proposes the analogous to the gold standard in the 17, 1800s where decentralized network of banks would, would hold securely store your Bitcoin. But for the immediate exchange, banks would issue tokens. There's no central bank. It's, there's no monopoly on the money supply. Different banks would issue tokens collateralized by Bitcoin, kind of analogous to maker DAO, how the, the maker is the collateral, but then you're issuing or minting DAI stablecoin. Right, And that using Bitcoin, for example, and you can say Ethereum today with the transaction cost to buy a cup of coffee is like using an F-35 jet to pick up a cup of coffee. Right. When you can send unlimited value across space and time, only the highest value transactions will actually be used on chain. That's at least the theory proposed by Safa Dynamos. Right. Yeah, that's, that sounds plausible. I mean, we're... Uh... That's, I think, the hope of layer two as well, right? It's uh, lighting. You know, you have, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's seems plausible again because, like, if we want to bring, again, like, I think there's some of us who are very comfortable with being kind of nature, and then, but if we want to kind of bring everybody along, and um, certainly not to kind of reduce their experiences, I think it's very important uh, to kind of have something that actually works for people on a reasonable level. I mean, we're kind of degen autists, right? So right, right. things that kind of work for us don't really work for other people. And so it's like, if you want mass adoption for something that's good here, then, uh, you know, ultimately that could mean cer certain things that are l less palatable to us, but that can be understandable that can happen to the system. And uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's It'll be interesting to see because part of the philosophy, part of the ability to, to just continue to create these coins and, you know, continue to kind of vote for our own little system and to have like almost like count countless spinoffs of things if we so choose. I mean, that's, that's, uh, 
that's really the libertarian's dream in a way, right? It's like you can of always course, just kind of, of course. Kind of have your own own little system. So we'll see if uh, maybe maybe the meta system here will hold out, and uh, we'll always be able to just have our own little paradise, despite you know the monoliths and the institutions that kind of have to form around uh, distributed yeah. freedom, distributed authority, distributed power. Good shit. Uh, we'll wrap it up here soon uh, before we hop off. Uh, Honey Badger 1, 2. I know there's a third out there somewhere. Appreciate you guys hopping on and and sharing a little bit, putting a, a voice to the avatar, if you will, uh, bringing your brand personality to life. Uh, of course, you could talk your ear off for hours. I mean, we, we yes. touched on sovereign individual and anti-fragile and efficient market hypotheses. And those alone are you know, hours, days worth of conversation and rabbit holes. Uh, any, any kind of takeaways from the conversation or the jungle as a whole? I mean, have you really seen anything like the Bowtie jungle before offline or online? I think the way that I think about the jungle is I don't meet people, you know, like, like people in the jungle in real life almost ever um and when i do they usually become you know some of my closest friends and this is you know you can tell just based on the type of media um they consume even uh, people in the jungle so i'd say you know it's it's kind of um goes back to one of btb's recent tweets which was something like nowadays with the internet um you know autists can kind of meet each other whereas before they'd be kind of sitting alone by themselves and dealing with all the BS in the world. So, you know, I think it's, it's uh, pretty incredible what um, the, the types of people, you know, that have managed to aggregate there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a pleasure meeting you both on, on this uh, podcast and uh, meeting, just talking in the jungle. I mean, I think the joke here, like, like Badger one has said, he brought me along here was, uh, you know, I, as you can probably tell, I can uh, go on for hours or even days probably about <laughs> all these topics. And uh, before, you know, I was just running, running uh, Badger One's ear off with these with these ideas. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> and, and now you have you a whole gotta, bunch of people whose ears are coming off. You gotta, you gotta come on the jungle and uh, meet some of these these folks. So here I am. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You see this? Uh, I mean, of course. Yeah. We get to know each other virtually. We we start to realize like these are the kind of people that we wish we had more of offline, but by the realities of internet versus real life, it's 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 hard to find them. It's hard to get that filter like the Bowtie Jungle. Right, right, yeah, and uh, you know it's a real blessing. I mean, in some ways, it's like um, I mean, I, like I said, it's like I would just talk to Badger One here, and I felt. I felt pretty fulfilled, um, <laughs> but uh, but it's this is a more efficient way, I suppose, for us to just kind of find each other. So this is great. Yeah. So uh, I'll drink to uh, I'll drink to the Bowtie Jungle. Aye aye. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.